This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to the program today. Before we start our discussion... Let's consider our motivation for joining the program as we usually do. Please make the motivation as vast as possible, considering that we are creating the cause for our enlightenment so we can help and benefit all beings as much as possible, particularly helping them to gain enlightenment. As we have said many times before, this bodhicitta motivation is the best we can generate because it's focused on limitless numbers of beings. But if it seems too great for you, at least direct your energies to your own enlightenment. Thank you. Now we've been going through the eight verses of mind training by the Tibetan master Langri Tampa and have reached the sixth verse when somebody whom I've benefited and in whom I've great hopes gives me terrible harm, I shall regard that person as my holy guru. Well, truly, how can we regard someone who's betrayed our trust terribly as our holy teacher? It seems impossible. The pain may be so intense and the mind so vengefully out of control that we can hardly entertain a positive thought about the betrayer, never mind seeing him or her as our teacher. It may be much more likely that the mind is caught up in devising ways to get revenge. And that leads me to an interesting article on revenge that I read in Observer, the Journal of the Association of Psychological Science. The article is titled The Complicated Psychology of Revenge and is written by Eric Jaffe. It starts off like this. A few years ago, a group of Swiss researchers scanned the brains of people who'd been wronged during an economic exchange game. These people had trusted their partners to split a pot of money with them only to find that the partners had chosen to keep the loot for themselves. The researchers then gave the people a chance to punish their greedy partners, and for a full minute, as the victims contemplated revenge, the activity in their brains was recorded. The decision caused a rush of neural activity in the caudate nucleus, the area of the brain known to process rewards. In previous work, the caudate has delighted in cocaine and nicotine use. The findings, published in the 2004 issue of Science, gave physiological confirmation to what the scorned have been saying for years, revenge is sweet. A thirst for vengeance is nothing if not timeless. It is as classic as Homer and Hamlet, and as contemporary as Don Corleone and Quentin Tarantino, as old as the eyes and teeth traded in the Bible, and as fresh as the raid that took the life of Osama bin Laden. But while the idea of revenge is no doubt delectable, 
the very phrase just desserts promises a treat, much of its sugar is confined to the coating. The actual execution of revenge carries a bitter cost of time, emotional and physical energy, and even lives. That minute before revenge is savoury, as the authors of the science study recognised, but what about the days and weeks that follow? In the past few years, psychological scientists have discovered many ways in which the practice of revenge fails to fulfil its sweet expectations. Behavioural scientists have observed that instead of quenching hostility, revenge can prolong the unpleasantness of the original offence, and that merely bringing harm upon an offender is not enough to satisfy a person's vengeful spirit. They have also found that instead of delivering justice, revenge often creates only a cycle of retaliation, in part because one person's moral equilibrium rarely aligns with another's. The upshot of these insights is a better sense of why the pursuit of revenge has persisted through the ages despite tasting a lot more sour than advertised. Jaffe goes on to write that early psychological views often held the idea that revenge will relieve the discomfort and aggression that we experience after being betrayed. Revenge provides an emotional catharsis, and once we've got our revenge, all will be right in our world once more. But, Jaffe says, research has proved that it doesn't happen that way, and even some studies show it can make the discomfort even worse. In 2002, a paper in the Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin by Brad Bushman of the Ohio State University reported a study that showed that people who vented their anger showed higher levels of aggression than those who did nothing at all. Based on this, Jaffe asks, if cathartic activity fails to dissolve hostility in general, what is to say revenge will dissolve the anger caused by one offence in particular? Now that question was behind a recent series of tests by Kevin Carlsmith of Colgate University, Timothy Wilson of the University of Virginia, and Daniel Gilbert of Harvard. Jaffe writes, Wilson and Gilbert have often found that people make powerful mistakes when predicting how they will feel about something in the future. With Carl Smith, they asked whether people could be wrong about the expected emotional benefits of revenge as well. Perhaps revenge is sweet, or perhaps the words of Francis Bacon are more accurate. A man that studieth revenge keeps his own wounds green, which otherwise would heal and do well. In the study, the experimenters divided the participants into groups of four and gave each participant a dollar to either invest in a group pot or keep for themselves. The researchers promised to add a 40% dividend to the pot total before redistributing it among all four members. This, writes Jaffe, created a classic experimental dilemma. What's best for the group is for all four members to donate their dollar, but what's best for the individual is to keep the dollar and also receive the one quarter of the final pot distribution, which grows through the investment of the others. In other words, as the researchers put it, to be a free rider. At the end of the trial, participants discovered that one member, secretly controlled by the researchers, had acted as a free rider. Some of the participants, called non-punishers, learned about this moral violation but were given no chance to do anything about it. 
Others, known as punishers, were given the chance to avenge the selfish behaviour by reducing the earnings of the offender. The decision to punish carried a small fee to simulate the personal cost of revenge. Both punishers and non-punishers rated their feelings immediately after the game, as well as ten minutes later. A final group, dubbed forecasters, had no power to punish, but recorded how they expected to feel if they could. The findings, Jaffe writes, were exactly as Francis Bacon had imagined. Punishers actually felt worse than forecasters predicted they would have felt had they been given the chance to be punishers. Punishers even felt worse than non-punishers, despite giving, getting the chance to take their revenge. Ten minutes after the game, punishers continued to brood on the free riders significantly more than the others did, an increased rumination that prevented them from moving on, the researchers surmised. All told, Carl Smith and company concluded in a 2008 issue of the Journey of Personality and Social Psychology, people erroneously believe revenge will make them feel better and help them gain closure, when in actuality, punishers ruminate on their deed and feel worse than those who cannot avenge a wrong. Carl Smith concluded, I think uncertainty prolongs and enhances emotional experiences, and one of the things that avengers do unintentionally is to prolong the unpleasant encounter. Those who don't have a chance to take revenge are forced, in a sense, to move on and focus on something different, and they feel happier. Now, this doesn't mean that revenge never feels good. Jaffe quotes the German psychological scientist Mario Golwitzer, who, while admitting that he thought revenge has a small chance of bringing satisfaction to the avenger, was interested in instances where revenge was sweet and what made it so. Writes Jaffe, In the service of that interest, Golwitzer has designed some beautifully elaborate experiments. After all, he says, it takes careful calibration to provoke a strong response from participants while remaining inside the ethical boundaries of institutional review boards. He continues, Golwitzer has explored two theories for why revenge could be satisfying. The first is known as comparative suffering. The idea that simply seeing an offender suffer restores an emotional balance to the universe. Now, if this were the case, then victims of wrongdoing who learned of an offender's misfortune should feel equally satisfied whether or not they were personally responsible for that misfortune. The second theory, the understanding hypothesis, holds that an offender's suffering is not enough on its own to achieve truly satisfactory revenge. Instead, the avenger must be assured that the offender has made a direct connection between the retaliation and the initial behavior. In one recent study, Goldwitzer and his collaborators asked participants to solve anagrams and assigned them a partner who was presumably doing the same in another room. Each correctly solved anagram earned the team a raffle ticket for a gift certificate worth 25 euros. At the end of the trial, the researchers asked participants to divide the tickets fairly. And most participants chose an equal split. But the partners, actually research confederates, assigned almost all the tickets to themselves. When participants were informed of this decision, they were given the chance to reduce their partner's ticket total. About 60% of the participants 
took this chance to the fullest, leaving the partner many fewer tickets than the initial fare distribution had provided. In a practical sense, these participants had taken revenge on the partner's unjust action. Other studies might have stopped there, Jaffe writes, but Kolwitzer took the additional step of giving the Avengers the chance to send their partner a message. The majority of those who chose to write this retaliatory note made reference to the injustice. Sorry for taking the tickets away, but unfortunately you only cared about yourself, one wrote. In response, the Avengers then received one of two types of replies prepared by the researchers. Some of these, meant to test the revenge theory of understanding, acknowledged that the retaliation had come as a result of their selfish behavior. Other messages, meant to test comparative suffering, showed no such understanding and even expressed a little indignation over their reduced ticket total. To conclude the test, the researchers asked all participants to rate their level of satisfaction with the exchange. Jaffe continues, The findings suggest that revenge can succeed only when an offender understands why the act of vengeance has occurred. Among participants who chose to avenge the selfish action, those who received a message of understanding reported much more satisfaction than did those who received an indignant response. In fact, the only time avengers felt more satisfaction than participants who took no revenge at all was when they received an indication of understanding. Put another way, unacknowledged revenge felt no better than none at all. Successful revenge is therefore about more than payback, the authors conclude in the April 2011 issue of the European Journal of Social Psychology. It's about delivering a message. The finding that it is the offender's recognizing of his wrongdoing that makes revenge sweet seems to suggest that, from the avenger's perspective, revenge entails a message, Kolwitzer says. If the message is not delivered, it cannot re-establish justice. Javi's article then goes on to talk about the idea of universal justice and what that means for revenge. He quotes research led by Cheryl Kaiser of Michigan State University, which, and I quote, surveyed people for their belief in a just world by seeing how much they agreed with statements like, I feel that people get what they deserve. Jaffe continues, After the September 11 attacks, Kaiser and colleagues returned to these people and assessed their responses to the event. In a 2004 issue of Psychological Science, the researchers reported that the more a person had believed in a just world before the attacks, the more this person experienced distress after them and the greater this person's desire for revenge. The difficulty with revenge based on restoring justice, Jaffe notes, is that the meaning of justice varies from person to person, and even one person may have a variety of perspectives on it. He writes, A few years ago, a group of researchers, led by Eileen Stilwell of the State University of New York at Potsdam, asked people to describe two events that had occurred in their lives one instance in which they had responded to an offence with retribution and another in which they had been on the receiving end of revenge. Stilwell and her collaborators found that when people were avengers, they believed their action had fairly restored equity to the relationship. When they were the recipients of revenge, however, they considered the payback excessive. 
This shifting viewpoint explains why revenge often occurs in endless cycles. No sooner did U.S. Navy SEALs avenge September 11 by killing Osama bin Laden, for instance, than Al-Qaeda vowed to seek revenge for his death. Successful revenge appears to make the avengers feel, feel satisfied that equity has been restored, but in many cases the recipient of revenge will perceive the aftermath of revenge as marked by inequity and negative outcomes. Stilwell and her co-authors concluded in a 2008 issue of Basic and Applied Social Psychology. The divergent perceptions of avenger and recipient will make it difficult to bring an end to the cycle of revenge in a way that both avenger and recipient will regard as satisfying, positive and fair. This finding fits in well with the Buddhist teachings that point out that revenge is often the start of a cycle of retribution that may never end. Revenge features in one in five murders in developed countries and a 2002 report noted that between 1974 and 2000, vengeance played a part in three of every five school shootings in the United States. But if revenge tastes so bad to the person, why does it remain a favorite dish of the people, asks Jaffe. He turns to Michael McCulloch and Benjamin Tabak of the University of Miami and Robert Kurzban of the University of Pennsylvania, who, and I quote, recently prepared a book chapter outlining revenge's adaptive function. They argue that individual acts of vengeance serve as group announcements that certain behaviors will elicit retaliation. In other words, the purpose of revenge might be less about responding to one particular offense than about preventing several others. Seen this way, revenge provides a great cultural benefit, leading to more cooperative and therefore productive societies in exchange for its great personal costs. This larger function takes three forms, McCulloch and his co-authors argue. The first is through direct deterrence. Simply put, revenge directly discourages an aggressor from subsequently performing the same offense. The second effect of revenge is indirect. By avenging specific actions, a person can establish a general definition of acceptable conduct and in the process avoid future confrontation. In this sense, reputation precludes revenge. The third adaptive function of revenge goes beyond simple deterrence of negative behaviors and actually coerces beneficial ones. To understand this idea, says McCulloch, it helps to envision life as an early human being. Suppose in that existence you and a neighbor must take turns guarding your camps from jaguar attacks. If you fall asleep one night and the animal kills a neighbor's child, this negligence in the eyes of natural selection is functionally similar to killing the neighbor's child directly. The threat of revenge in response to such failed cooperation, a concept known as altruistic punishment, would entice you to stay awake, with the expectation, of course, that your neighbor will do the same on his watch. Jaffe says that although the revenge instinct may seem pervasive, resisting the urge to retaliate is even more common. However, that may not indicate kindness. Our body may have developed an internal scale that, and I quote, weighs the adaptive benefits of revenge against its various costs, from the potential for retaliation to the severance of important relationships. More often than not in today's world, 
This scale tips in favor of forgiveness. Jaffe quotes McCulloch, the author of Beyond Revenge, The Evolution of the Forgiveness Instinct, in saying, You have to have some way of maintaining relationships, even though it's inevitable some will harm your interests, given enough time. We think what has evolved is a secondary system, and that's the forgiveness instinct, that enables people to suppress the desire for revenge and signal their willingness to continue on, even though someone has harmed their interests, assuming the person will refrain from doing so again in the future. That, says Jaffe, might not be the most uplifting interpretation of how the brain governs human relationships, but it is at least a relatively peaceful one. Of course, in a religious context, we are taught to actively nurture forgiveness so that it does become a driving force in our relationships. Forgiveness, we have found, has many benefits, psychological and physical, other than a mere willingness to continue on. His Holiness the Dalai Lama recognizes two levels to forgiveness. The higher level, he says, is to recognize that the other person, in this case our betrayer, is still a human being, still deserving of our compassion and sense of concern. So we should then never develop ill feeling towards him or her. On another level, he says, we should simply avoid developing anger towards another person, even if that person harmed us. This doesn't mean we shouldn't counter their negative actions. In fact, we have to distinguish between the actor and the act. Towards a harmful action, we can have a measure of anger and opposition, but never towards the actor. If you have anger, a negative attitude towards the other person, that creates in them a negative attitude towards you, says His Holiness. Then the anger remains longer. If you practice the higher level of forgiveness, then without losing respect, without losing compassion, there's a much greater chance of transforming that person's attitude towards you. If you use anger, you lose the opportunity for that positive change. He urges us to always remain compassionate to others, even those who harm us, and uses as an example a Tibetan monk who spent more than 18 years in a communist gulag. In the early 80s, he found the opportunity to come to India and join his previous monastery, says His Holiness. I know him very well, and on one occasion I asked him about his experience in the Chinese gulag. Then he told me on a few occasions he faced some danger. I thought danger to his life maybe, but he said the danger was from losing compassion for the Chinese. That is the real sign of the practice of forgiveness. Further to the advantages of purposefully nurturing forgiveness, the nun Tupton children points out that the more we hang on to negative emotions brought on by betrayal, the more we suffer. We get to a point where we make an identity out of the thought, I am the person who was betrayed by so-and-so. The betrayal may then become our chief topic of conversation. It becomes our story, the way we see our life. And we are stuck in that identity with its hurt and anger. It is an identity rooted in the past with little relevance to the present moment. However, she points out that forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. Forgiving means releasing the negative emotions associated with the betrayal, and that may not be that easy. In Living Buddha, Living Christ, Thich Nhat Hanh writes, you cannot force yourself to forgive. Only when you understand what has happened can you have compassion for the other person and forgive him or her.
That kind of forgiveness is the fruit of awareness. When you are mindful, you can see the many causes that led the other person to make you suffer. And when you see this, forgiveness and release arise naturally. So forgiveness is a process of looking deeply into the situation and seeing as many of the causes for it as possible. And some of those causes may have nothing to do with the relationship between you and your betrayer. That understanding allows forgiveness. For example, Tipton Children says we may have given our betrayer more trust than they could cope with. Maybe that was a misjudgment on my part, that I didn't see them so clearly, so I trusted them in an area that maybe they weren't able to bear, she says. Or it could be that maybe they were able to bear that trust in general, but they're imperfect human beings, so of course they're going to crash. It may have been a reasonable expectation of somebody to behave in a certain way, but it's unreasonable for us to expect someone to always do whatever we want. People are imperfect and they make mistakes. She says that seeing this may help us in reducing the anger and the unrealistic expectation we had of the betrayer and replace it with a more nuanced perspective that is also based on compassion. This person may have promised to do something but was completely overtaken by their reflective emotions, just like we ourselves are from time to time. Understanding this helps us develop some compassion. But that doesn't mean we say that their betrayal was okay. Says Tipton Children, we have to be very clear, like what they did was not okay, but we don't have to hate them and hold a grudge for it. We can have some compassion for them. Then, of course, we have to decide to what extent we're going to trust them in what areas in the future. Now we have more information about this person, can we trust them in the same area where we trusted them before? Maybe before we trusted them here, now we have to lower it a little bit. Or maybe we see that through their making purification and changing themselves, maybe we see, no, they are worthy of the same kind of trust as before. But we have to give it time. Even if the person admits the betrayal and the hurt and apologizes profusely, we may have to leave some time to see how the, pro the situation progresses. Tipton Children uses the example of a husband who portrays his wife, but is regretful and promises never to do so again in the future. If he has betrayed her before and has been remorseful, she may have to take a lot of time to see if he is genuine and how much time is needed to repair the relationship. As Tipton Children says, the only way she is going to know is over time, and there's no way to rush that process. It just has to be time spent together to build the trust back up and then to decide to what level she trusts that person. She points out also that we may not need to trust someone else equally in all our areas of life. In some areas, trust is more important than others. Being married, for instance, means trusting your spouse to be emotionally and sexually faithful, but may not mean trusting them completely to be a good driver. Thus, to maintain a good relationship, we may have to place our trust fully in certain areas of the relationship, but not necessarily others. If our trust in the important areas is compromised, we may have to give time for it to be restored. And now our time is up, and we'll, with that we'll have to part for this week. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll do so again next week also. Please dedicate any positive potential we have developed to gaining enlightenment 
so we can best benefit all beings everywhere. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.